You can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Look at the first 13 verses this morning. So we're in a series on the life of Jesus Christ. Um, and finally, finally now we're um, getting into things that he did. Right? The life of Jesus Christ, it includes his works and his person and his teachings. Uh, we're, we're getting into the things that he did, his works now. We've been focusing uh, so far on things like who he is, right? his persons, uh, uh, things surrounding the, uh, the events surrounding his birth, things that happened to him uh, early in his life. And now we'll be looking at his actions, his miracles, his teachings as we go forward in the gospel. Uh, through um, through Easter time, and as we do that, as we look at his life and what we see throughout, you know, the majority of the Gospel of Luke and the majority of the Gospels, all four of them, um, we see his life, and it's absolutely critical for us to remember that Jesus is more than just a good example for us. He's more than just a teacher, right? Um, more than just a teacher who's trying to teach by example, right? Uh, he is more than just an example. The first thought in our minds when we consider his actions and his works. So the first thought in our minds when we consider the Gospels that portray his life and his works, especially, should not be thoughts of imitation. First thoughts in our minds should not be thoughts of imitation about how to be like Jesus. Those are excellent thoughts, and we should have those thoughts. We should think about that, but not first. First, and this is critical um, to understanding Christianity and to understanding the Scriptures, First, when we consider Jesus' works, we need to see and we need to trust that their work's done for us. Right? Uh, not just to provide an example, because we need more than just an example. Jesus' works are works done in order to save us, in order to do what we cannot do. Um, we can't do it for ourselves. He came to do it. And the stage is set for us to understand his life and his works this way. <clears throat> we know that it's not just about him setting an example for us because of what we looked at last week in his baptism. He's the God-man come into the world to stand with us and for us. He entered into that union with us, that substitutionary position for us at his baptism. So now we're supposed to see that everything he does from that point on, everything that he does, he does for us. So when you look at him, you're seeing the one whose life counts for you. You're seeing the one whose life counts for you. So as we come to this passage about his uh, temptation in the wilderness, we know that we're coming to more than just a cool story, um, more than just a great example teaching us how to fight temptation. We're, we're seeing the work of our champion. He's fighting in our place, and he conquers the devil himself on our behalf. And so it's with thoughts, um, <clears throat> thoughts about Jesus that are like that, uh, about his life and work um, firmly in our minds, then then and only then can we see how our Savior is, in fact, actually helping us to be like him and fight temptation and sin. All right, so um, we can imitate our Savior, but only when we know him as our Savior. Right, we can imitate our Savior when we know him as our Savior. So we'll look at uh, this morning in the, tap, uh, in the temptation of Jesus Christ, how Jesus faced the devil, devil's temptations Um, Secondly, what that means for our salvation, because he's our champion. And then uh, third, how it helps us in our fight. So Jesus, as our example, um, 
So we'll look at those three things. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read Luke 4. <clears throat> Father, this is a very tricky thing for us to keep in our minds, and especially in our hearts, so that when we read the Gospels, when we look at your Son, um, we're seeing someone who came into the world to live and die for us in our place, that his story is our story by your grace, and that it's not uh, primarily given to us to show us how to live. We pray that uh, you would help us to see Christ as our Savior so that we could then see him as our example through this passage. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so um, the three temptations that we see here are uh, probably representative of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, and they're fairly well representative of all sorts of temptations that we face. Right? Um, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, the commentator on this, says, as to the content of the temptations, each involves a seizure of palpable power. Right? So the temptations are about power. They're about how to get it or how to use it. And ultimately, in each temptation, the devil tries to persuade Jesus to be self-centered about power, right? um, to view himself as autonomous from God. So the first temptation, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. He was tempted by the devil probably during that whole time. He ate nothing, and when those days were over, he was hungry. That's probably an understatement, right? Um, and the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And it makes good sense. I mean, if you've got power, you're the son of God. If you've got power and you're probably dying of starvation, then use your power to satisfy your hunger. What's wrong with that? If you're the son of God, take matters into your own hands. And at some point, you've got to look out for number one, right? But being the son of God means not taking matters into your own hands. Being the son of God means not taking matters into your own hands. It, it means not having autonomous power and using it for yourself. Right? That's what it means to be the son of God. It means depending on 
the Father, trusting in the love of the Father and the care of the Father for your life. And the devil uh, is implicitly uh, undermining, he's attacking the Father's love for the Son, right? He says, you're let out here by the Spirit, right? Um, Your Father's Spirit, for, for what? To suffer and die? He must not really care for you very much. I mean, if you've got the power, you better take care of yourself, but the power of the Son of God is not the power to take care of self. It's, it's the power to love and submit to his Father's authority, to give himself away in love, not to work for his own sake. It's a very different concept of power than we have. Right? At its root, that's a very, it's a fundamentally different concept of power than we have. God's power is not like what we imagine it to be, where you just have ability to do anything you want. Um, God's power is the absolute freedom to love and give self away. That's what God's power looks like. And Jesus has that power in infinite amounts, but it would go straight against his nature as the Son of God. It would go straight against our nature as humans who were created in his image to use power for the sake of self, even if that means preserving one's own life. Um, Jesus trusts his father to take care of him. That's where his life comes from. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 8, which refers to Israel wandering in the wilderness. Remember, they had been uh, delivered from Egypt, from slavery. God had done some miracles to deliver them, and he brought them out into the wilderness. And it was a time of testing of them to test their faith. And they were wandering for 40 years, and that is symbolized in Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. But he quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 8, and he reminds, uh, which, which reminds God's people, reminded Israel, how God took care of them. Right? How he took care of them while he was testing their faith in the wilderness. He said, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. This was something nobody had ever seen, right? Your fathers did not know it. It was a miraculous provision. So that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's where your life comes from, not the stuff that feeds your body. And it's a passage, that Deuteronomy 8 passage, which uh, Sam read, is a passage filled with reminders of God's loving care. He's a loving father and he cares for these people. Your clothes didn't wear out while you were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? And the devil was trying to undermine Jesus' faith in that love, in that care, right? in his father's love. And Jesus basically responded, my father loves me and keeps me. And even if I die from starvation out here, I know that he loves me. And I love him and I submit to him. He's my life, not bread. Um, he exercised true power in placing his life in his father's hands, no matter what the outcome might be. He wasn't going to manage it on his own for his own sake. The next temptation, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I'll give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So um, under the circumstances, one might think this was a hallucination brought about by heat stroke and starvation, but it was the enemy of our souls tempting Jesus with a vision, right? He sees all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It's a vision that he's having. Uh, and, and there are so many lies bundled into this temptation, it's hard to unpack them all. But basically, the devil is saying, the kingdom and the power and the glory are mine. 
And if you place yourself underneath me, then I will give them to you. Right? And we recognize this, this offer that he's making. You do something for me, and I'll do something for you. I'll give you the kingdom and the power and the glory. Right? This is the standard path of the world to self-advancement. Right? Um, when you seek power over others, you have to get it from someone else who has it. But again, it's, a version, it's the version of power that's promoted by the devil. And it's the version of power that's native to this broken world and not native to the kingdom of God. God alone has true power. Right? God is in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the foundation of all reality. There wouldn't be reality, there wouldn't be power if it weren't for God. All power, all authority, all glory reside in him. They have their wellspring in him alone. His power, again, is entirely different from the devil's power. God's power is the freedom to give himself away in love. And his is not a glory that grabs and takes. His is a glory that gives and shares. And Jesus, being the Son of God, come in the flesh, he not only knows this, he already has this. He already has true power and glory because he is utterly fixed on glorifying not himself, but his Father. And that's why he's the king of God's kingdom, which is set over and against all the kingdoms of this world, which uh, are under the devil's sway. So Jesus replies again with scripture from Deuteronomy 6. It's the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And then also 1 Samuel 7, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Um, and Jesus was ultimately God-centered. Um, and, and then the third temptation, the devil, sorry, we're kind of hurrying through these so we can get to the rest of this, but the devil took him to uh, Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil says, Basically, you want to quote scripture, huh? That's what this is about. And, it, and then he quotes um, from Psalm 91, and he proceeds to do what we often like to do, which is take quotations out of context, um, and we twist and distort the meaning to our own self-centered ends. I'm sure the devil knows the Bible better than any of us. But that's no guarantee that you should take him at his word, right? Um, in fact, uh, it's, it's too bad that he didn't go on to quote the next verse, um, the next verse in Psalm 91 is, You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Right? So the, the Bible likens the devil to both those animals. He's a roaring lion and he's the serpent. And Jesus is the one to defeat him, to trample him underfoot. It's too bad he didn't quote that part. So, <clears throat> but so far, Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated his steadfast trust in the Father and his dependence on God's care for him, his submission to the Father, complete other orientation uh, in his desire only to glorify God. So the devil says, hey, well, so since you're such a great guy, you're, such, you're the precious son of God, prove it that he loves you. Prove that he loves you by trying to kill yourself. And if he stops you, then, you know, we'll all know that he really loves you. Right? Um, and that's, that's insane. And that's sin. Sin is insane. It doesn't make sense. But we do that kind of thing all the time. We test others. We test God. We test other people. Making people prove their love to us, feeling insecure if they don't. Um, and that's not a healthy relationship 
Any relationship like that is not healthy. That's just self-absorption, and that's manipulation. That's using, using uh, the love of other people to make us feel secure. And, and Jesus saw that for what it was. It was ultimately a test of God's love. Right? Do you believe in God's love or not? Uh, which ultimately, if he were going to participate in that test, it would, it would mean he doubts God's love. I. Howard Marshall says that the temptation is to prove the truth of God's promise by putting it to the test, something which the godly man does not need to do because he has faith in God and which is thus a sign of lack of faith. <clears throat> but being the eternal son of God from eternity, living in pure communion and delight with his father, he knew his father's love and care for him beyond a shadow of any doubt. And then being the incarnate Son of God, the one who came into the world to become also a human for us, who had heard his Father's declaration of love and received the spirit of love at his baptism just before this, he trusted as a human in his Father's love and care for him. So he answered the devil again from Deuteronomy 6. It said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I know my Father loves me. I don't have to test him. And the devil left for the time being. So this passage, um, even though we see in it a lot of ways in which we kind of recognize temptations that are familiar to us and that happen frequently, um, it's not first about how you can beat the devil. It's not first uh, Jesus as an example for you. It's first about how Jesus beat the devil for you, on your behalf. You know, if you're honest, you will admit that you've failed every one of these tests these temptations, just like Israel, the nation that God had miraculously delivered, and that not only had he delivered, but that he sustained through miraculous provision in the wilderness through uh, providing, you know, breaking open rocks and having water come forth and raining down bread out of heaven, you know. Um, And Israel wandered in the desert because they complained and they grumbled and they distrusted and they disbelieved that God actually cared for them. (laughs) Right? In the face of all of this pure care for them and we're like that they came up with their own schemes to fix their circumstances right they demanded more miraculous signs of god's provision if you really do care for us you've got to give us meat you know um and they were just generally selfish and not god-centered and we're like that by nature right all of us But this passage isn't primarily about our fight against sin because it's about Jesus' fight and not just his fight, his fight on our behalf. Um, We know this because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's the same Spirit that had just fallen on him at his baptism when he united himself to us to to be our champion. Um, United himself to us for our salvation. That Spirit filled him and led him to testify to the truth of God's grace to people like us. God's spirit of love compelled him to head out into the desert to do battle with the devil for our sake. And whereas we'd fall to the devil's temptations even in our best moments, Jesus met the devil and prevailed when he was weak. Forty days of hunger, weak. And Johnson, again, says, uh, in the wilderness where no one could observe and where the inner dispositions laid bare by true hunger were challenged, Jesus chose not self, 
but service of God. Hunger, uh, we've probably not, any of us, gone more than a day without eating, right? Um, Unless you've tried really hard to fast in maybe two days, you know? Hunger strips away our kind of societal, relational constraints, right? And it exposes our true needs and our true desires. It exposes what's going on deep down inside of us. And usually we're frustrated and angry and things are bad when we're hungry, right? And deep down inside of Jesus, all the way down, there was no self-centeredness. There was only God-centeredness. Only true love, only true power, only true glory. And all of this was true of him, not just as the divine son of God, but as a human who was perfectly oriented on his father. Because the devil tempts humans. He tempts humans to become inhuman. To be like what we're not supposed to be like. To cause us to sin, to disobey love, to break our relationship with the God of relationships. But Jesus was perfectly human. He was perfectly dependent on God. He's the true humanity. He's the true Israel wandering in the wilderness. He's the champion of God's people. It is exactly like Ultimate Spider-Man Season 2, Episode 13. Um, Kids, anybody watch Ultimate Spider-Man? It's pretty awesome. It's on Netflix. Um, Spider-Man has a team. One of his team members is Iron Fist. I'm not going to go into his background. But basically, he comes from this mystical city, and Spider-Man goes to this mystical city, it may be in the Himalayas or something, and Iron Man, uh, Iron Fist, sorry, is, is uh, supposed to become the king of this place and be the protector of its magical secrets or whatever. He's supposed to become the king, but his enemy poisons him. His enemy blinds him. His enemy makes him unable to... Uh, take this this final challenge which is him versus the enemy in a race right and um and so there's this enemy there's this rival for the kingdom and iron fist is unable to take the challenge for himself so to become king he has spider-man face the trials on his behalf as his champion right and so spider-man goes through this race and um and you know he ends up saving the enemy's life, and the enemy actually wins the race. Um, but Spider-Man wins because he had mercy. <laughs> he, ha- he had mercy, and he had love, and he saved his enemy, and so he was the true champion. And so Iron Fist became the king because Spider-Man, the champion, uh, won for him. So it's exactly like that, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Jesus... <clears throat> Jesus beat the devil in a surprising show of a strange kind of power. It's through his, his loving, self-giving obedience to his father, which carried him all the way to his own death on our behalf as a champion. Right? He is our savior. He's our high priest. He's the one who reconciles us to God. He's the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves Because when he was tempted, he did not sin. It says that in Hebrews 4, 15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
And he really is able to help and to save those who do sin when they're tempted. It says again in Hebrews chapter 2, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Ultimately, his perfect obedience to God, his father, his perfect obedience culminated in his death. He, went, he, he obeyed his father and took up his cross and died, which is the reason why he is the greatest in the kingdom of God, completely deserving of God's exaltation of him over all things, over all powers. Says, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2 about Jesus that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's the true king. The kingdom and the power and the glory is his. And this king, this great Lord, is your deliverer, right? His record of obedience, the story of his conquering sin and temptation and the devil is your story. It's your record. It all belongs to you as a gift of his grace. By his power, you have been yanked out of the devil's grasp and you have been placed into the kingdom of God's beloved son. The torment of your soul over all your sins over all your many failures in the face of temptation, the little sins, the big ones, all of them, the torment is over, the night of sin is ended. Because Jesus took, uh, he, he took our flesh, he took our humanity to himself, and he stood true for us in real power. He took the worst that the devil could dish out, and he stood fully devoted to God the Father for us so that we could say, so that we could say, in him... We don't fall to temptation. In him, we obey God. And Jesus' steadfast obedience on our behalf, it leads to our obedience. Right? So if we know him as our Savior, then we can also know him as our exemplar, right? as our example. Our, our response to our champion is one of love and one of gratitude and trust and our response to our champion is we want to be more like him, right? And his spirit that's given to us and he dwells inside of us, he's renewing us in the image of our champion. Right? Karl Barth says, because God is for us, we may also be for him. We can see clearly in Jesus Christ that God favors us, that he's for us and he's not against us. He came into the world to carry us back into a relationship with God. So we know he's trustworthy. We know he's dependable. We know he's gracious and caring. So when we are tempted to act in our own autonomy for our own sakes, to look out for number one, to manage our own lives through power, to pursue our own authority and glory, we can remember we have no need for any of that. In Jesus Christ, we have the eternal, infinite love of God, which is the kind of love that wins our trust, and it wins our love, and it wins our obedience. We have no need to put God to the test, because God, in the person of his Son, he's already gone to the cross. He's already ultimately demonstrated and proven once and for all, he loves us, and he will not leave us or forsake us. We can 
we can uh, give up our comforts. We can even give up the basic necessities of life, if need be, in order to serve him and advance his kingdom and share his love with others. But none of this is automatic, right? This doesn't just uh, happen. You, uh, you actually need to use your mind when you face temptations. We can see that uh, as, as we see Jesus as our example. Jesus quoted the scriptures, right? He trusted, he relied, he knew, and he, he relied upon God's word, and he let that word shape his life when it came to the test. So you need to know God's word. You need to know the Bible. You need to know the scriptures. You need to know what his love for you looks like. Because it, it sure doesn't look like what you think it should look like. You need to know what God's love for you looks like. You need to recognize it. You need to know his promises. And you need to know what it looks like for you to respond to his grace, to his love. And the scriptures uh, that Jesus quoted were all from the Old Testament, right? That's our book. That's our book. The Old Testament is, together with the New Testament, Christian scripture. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you need to know the Old Testament. It wasn't just discarded when the New Testament church said, hey, what are we going to get together as our Bible? Well, these New Testament letters, they make sense. Right? Um, the Old Testament is, is for you. It's your story. It's written for you. It's written to you. It's written for your faith and for your obedience to God and for your fight against sin and temptation and the devil. Scripture uh, doesn't work like magical spells or incantations, though some parts of the Old Testament might seem kind of obscure, like those things you'd recite to ward off demons or whatnot, but it's not like that, as if you suddenly just change reality by saying the right words and quoting the right verse, right? Scripture's meant to foster your relationship to God. That's what it's there for, to connect you to God through faith in Jesus Christ, through his grace, and to win your heart and your mind and your actions for him. So let the word of his grace make you strong with his power to trust him and give yourself to him in love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we take delight in knowing that you are not the kind of God who hoards the kingdom and the power and the glory all to yourself, but you created us and you have redeemed us and you've made good promises to us. And one day you'll send your son Jesus back into the world to to claim us forever to, to take us up into your kingdom and power and glory and to share it with us for eternity. That's true love, and that's uh, the kind of love that we want to respond to. We thank you that Jesus came and lived for us, that he fought the devil and he won for us, and that now we can look at him and say we want to be more like him. And so we pray that your spirit would use your word in our hearts and in our minds to make us more like our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.